Dread is a real thing. Dread. I mean, dread. When I think, when you think about dread, what do you dread? And I was telling Danielle and I was telling Bob that about this time of year, dread was something that kind of crept into my life. Uh, for the last 10 years, basically, I have led a uh, Central American mission trip. Um, in the last couple years with Nicaragua, it's been different. But for eight years prior to that, I led a Guatemala mission trip. And about, you know, usually it would come, it would come over spring break. And about in March, I would begin to dread it. Not, not the mission work. The mission work was incredible. But what happened was the second year we went, I got very sick. And your friend David that you saw on the video got very sick. And not only did we get so sick, but this place where we went is so far away that you have to get in these vehicles and drive forever on highways that have speed bumps on them. And it is, it's just a miserable trip, and your back hurts, and you don't sleep, and then you get sick, and then that's a whole experience in and of itself. Uh, we don't even need to go into all of the PG-13 aspects of that. But you would realize every year, oh man, this is coming. And what if I'm sick at this part? And what if I'm sick during this part? And what if I don't make it? And what if it feels like this? And what if I'm sick like this? And what if somebody else in the trip is sick? And what are we going to do with this? And what? And you know, and all of a sudden, just this—you'd wake up in the morning and you begin to think about it, and you just kind of, oh, no, that's that's dread on such a minor level compared to the dread that we're getting ready to talk about. Because if you're Jesus and you've known since all eternity, and really, if we're going to go back biblically, people have known since Genesis three that God was going to send someone to be the justification and the propitiation, these are all our big theological words, but the substitutionary sacrifice for people and their sins. And you get all that laid on Christ. And then it just even if we look biblically and you see the words that David prophetically speaks about what will happen to Christ. And you see then in this just incredibly blatantly straightforward version of what will happen to Christ in Isaiah 52 and 53. And so then when you get to Luke twenty two forty four, and Jesus is praying in the garden, Father, if it is your will, could this cup, let this cup, please, is it possible, any other way that this cup would pass for me? And then it says that Jesus went back and fervently prayed more, and blood and sweat dripped from his head because of the dread of this moment that was to come. And so this thing, this crucifixion that we're talking about, is something that John writes so little about. Not, not that he doesn't describe it, but if you look right here, just, just look at the text. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus. Well, they don't go into any detail. Why is that? I mean, it's just kind of like, you know, if I just kind of said, well, I blew out my tire on the way home and I had to change my tire. Do I need to go over the every single step of what I did. No, that's changing your tire on a car is something that's commonplace and everybody understands and we kind of all see it and it's, it's depicted in movies and TV and books and magazines and we talk about it and you see people on the side of the road doing it. But crucifixion to us is a little bit removed. So when it says that he was crucified, let me just bear with me here, just if you've never heard this before. So Christ would have been at the, at, at the Praetorian or, or, or at Pilate's headquarters either way would have been given the cross beam to the cross. Not the entire cross, but the cross beam to the cross. The pole part of it would have been sticking in the ground when he got there. And he was called to carry it an incredibly long distance, maybe a circuitous route. And if you go into Jerusalem, they have maybe the way that they think it was called the Via Dolorosa, which just means the way of pain. And so he's called to carry it 
We know from looking at the other Gospels that because of the scourging that he had taken, because of the beating, he was not even able to carry it all the way. When he would get there, they would nail his wrists to it, between a, a, a big nail between the radius and the ulna of your wrist. You would be secured to it. And then contrary to popular belief where, you know, he's like 20 feet off the ground, you know, his feet might have been about right here. You know, he, they're not lifting him up in some crazy high way. He's going to be right here. So with, when he has this, you know, branch extended to him, it's not like, you know, they have to get like this, you know, thing that is going to go way, way up to get him the sour wine. So he's right there. So you can see this whole idea when we reflect back on Psalm 22 that is referred to time and time again. When you have these people that are cursing at him and, and hurling insults and you saved yourself, why can't you I mean you saved others? Why can't you save yourself? They call him the king of the Jews. This was not something where he was way up here kind of aloof. This was where you were looking right at him. And so he was there. And so again, when you get Psalm 22, I was surrounded just like a pack of dogs. People surrounded me and my enemies hurled insults at me. This is all happening right here. And then his feet would have been on their nail, but there might have actually been a small podium, a small like board right there so that he could push himself up with his toes, with the balls of his feet up on it. Because crucifixion works in not this short way that it happens right here in this text. Typical crucifixion takes 36 to 72 hours to happen. It's not designed to be a quick death or or an execution. It's designed to extend death as long as possible so that it is a shameful, agonizing, painful death. And so the prisoner would, would, the crucified would be able to raise himself up every once in a while to get a full breath because otherwise they're doing this, which is constricting, and you would die by asphyxiation. And so that Christ died quickly shows you that something else was going on. And we know from Isaiah 53, but also we know from the rest of the Bible, in Isaiah 53, for it, was, for it was God's plan to crush him, the Lord laid upon him the sins of us all. So here you go, coming out of three hours of darkness, he is being crucified, and he's, he's crucified here in this moment. The robe that he had would have been a seamless robe, and this also goes right back to Psalm 22. John wants you so badly to understand this has all been talked about before. And so in Psalm 22, he talks about they gambled for my robe. Well, this robe would have been a seamless garment that a Jewish mother would have made her son kind of at his coming of age, of his going out into the world. And then Psalm 24, again, this direct connection to, excuse me, verse 24 is this direct connection to Psalm 22:18. The people there, they not only rejected him, they reveled in rejecting him. And then, Psalm, and then verses 25 through 27 you just think about the sting of lost loyalty. You've spent your entire adult ministry, Christ's entire adult ministry, 33 to 34 years old possibly, and only John is there. We know that Judas betrayed and hung himself and died. Where's the rest? The sting of lost loyalty. And Jesus, even in his death, in these verses 25 through 27, even in his death, Jesus acts in taking care and mercy. And he says to John and to Mary, from now on, you will take care. He will take care of you. Take her into your own home. And Jesus, even in this most self-centered time where you would say, gosh, when you're suffering, you, it's fine to think of yourself. When you're suffering, it's fine to concentrate on you. Even in his suffering, he is in the business of taking care of others, of providing love, of caring. Well, that's, that's he was crucified. So as we talk about this part in the, in the text that comes back to the, to the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, and then we get to this, was crucified, dead, and buried. So we talked about crucified, but let's talk about Christ's death. So that starts with verse 28. So in verse 28, it literally starts this, and he says, I am thirsty. He was accomplishing his purpose. As Christ is accomplishing his purpose, he wants to take in one more time to be able to say what he's accomplished. And again, this goes right back to Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. My the tongue, my tongue is just to the roof of my mouth. I feel parched like baked clay. And so Jesus acts so that he can have one more provision to be able to say what he's accomplished. In verse twenty-nine, remember he rejected the gall that would have the, the, that would have dulled his his pain. He rejected the gall, and so he takes this weak wine from the soldiers. Remember, he's only a few feet off the ground, so it's not like they have to like get some crazy long stick to give it to him. And then in verse thirty, he says this word, "tetelestai." Tetelestai. It's where we get the word teleology, which is the reason, it's the purpose, the meaning behind thing. What's the purpose? Teleology. But tetelestai literally means it is accomplished. And if you looked at it, it would also be stamped on things. Because if you had, if you had bought something on credit and you had been paying on it or you'd had a debt or maybe you had a debt that you were fulfilling trying to work it off. When that happened and the debt was paid or the price was paid or whatever it was was, was done, it would be stamped on it. It has been paid in full. Tetelestai. I have accomplished it. I have paid it in full. And I want you also to understand right here at this moment, we know that it is exactly 3 p.m. Do you know what happens on Friday before the Sabbath or before Passover? At 3 p.m. on Friday before Passover, that's when the Passover lamb is slaughtered. The exact moment that Christ dies. So in verse 31 you get this crucifixion 36 to 72 hours. But so as not to mess up Passover, they want to break the legs of the prisoners so they can't keep raising themselves up so they can die quickly. Get this. They are crucifying the one that Passover is all about so that they can go have Passover. You want to talk about the sinful condition of people. Us understanding all kinds of religion but having no idea what to do when God himself comes along to us. The irony and then verses 32 through 33. To hasten the death by, death by crucifixion, they're going to break the legs, but then they already get to Jesus and he is already dead. Again, going back, amazing that Zechariah 12 would say they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. And Psalm 22 would say, but not a bone in his body was broken. And what happens? They look upon the one whom they have pierced. And right here in verses 34 through 37, they pierce his side and blood and water come out. Now, a lot of people think a lot of different things about it, but also when you've gone through trauma, there tends to be water or fluid that will surround the heart and surround the lungs. And I think the point here, more than that we look anything deeper into it, is when his side is pierced by the spear. This is not that he has gone into a deep faint or he has passed out or he is unconscious. This is to remind you that Christ is dead. The Son of God has gone to the cross and not been tortured beyond repair, but has died. And then we get to verses 38 through 39. And we talk about these secret disciples. And we talk about Joseph of Arimathea. And we talk about Nicodemus. 
And we remember that in verses 38 through 39, if you were going to talk about what would happen through crucifixion, if someone came and wanted the body, they would give them the body and they would take them and give them a decent burial. If, nobody came, if no one came for the body, and maybe no one comes for these two thieves that are crucified on either side of Christ, that body would simply be taken and thrown out in a trench, out in the trash dump of the city and covered. So only too happy to give someone the body. These secret disciples, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, come. And Nicodemus, if you want to go back and read more about him, is in John chapter 3. But they come, and it's also significant that none of the original disciples are there. None. Rejected even in death. This is incredible. This is not just the Sabbath that's coming up. This is the Passover. And anyone that would touch a dead body would make themselves ceremonially unclean for seven days. And here are two men that say this. What's the point of the Passover if I can't have Jesus? I would rather be associated with Jesus in death than go through another religious ceremony. Because without Jesus, without the Passover lamb, it doesn't matter. So they touch the body. And these are not professional embalmers. These are not men that just, you know, on their side business, they take care of bodies. This is, these are people that out of love come to Christ, take his body, and bring $150,000 worth of spices. And in love and in care, wrap his body and then verses 40 through 42 this is probably not joseph of arimathea's personal tomb because he's a rich fella and rich people probably don't want to be buried within walking distance and shouting and screaming and crying and wailing distance of the hill of golgotha but it was a new tomb brand new tomb that someone had had and there was no one there and so in verses and right here in verses 42 41 and 42 we reflect back on Isaiah 53, 9. He was buried, buried like a criminal. He was numbered with the transgressors. And even in his burial, he does not receive anything kingly other than what two secret disciples give to him. He was buried in a common grave. And Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. Part of the story that grabs me the most, I think, is the presence of Jesus' mother through all of this. It takes me to, a, if, if you'll permit me, a, a moment of uh, personal privilege. It takes me to an amusing story about my mother and my family that happened just a week ago, and then I'll get back to Jesus' mother at this story. Because this was just about a week ago, and my brother David had gone to visit my mother, who's 91 years old, and my mother goes on Fridays to uh, lead a Bible study at a local nursing home. And my mother was introducing my brother and his three children, and and they're standing up beside him, and my younger brother David speaks up, and he says, I'm her favorite son. And somebody in the congregation said, you must be Bob. <laughs> I will always love that moment. That will be part of, I will tell that story at my mother's funeral, I promise you that. Who was Mary's favorite son? So you ask any mother, and she will insist, like, I don't have a favorite. Um, but think about Mary now. She had other children from the other Gospels we learn. Who's Mary's favorite son? And I'm going like, okay, we got the firstborn boy with angels showing up and shepherds and wise men. And there's a bond between these two that is stronger than any bond between any mother and son because aside from their gender, they shared the same DNA. 
So I want you to, I want you to hear this story, and I want you to feel this story through Mary looking at her favorite son. We got a text the other day from actually Robin Parrish who told us about uh, Jen Riddle taking Harper to, down to Charlotte to Levine Children's Hospital because of these, you know, this uh, complicated fracture in her elbow and just, just a broken arm for a mom. Like, this is, this is terrible. You, those of you who are moms know what it's like when your child is hurt. This is Mary watching her son. And I don't introduce that into the text. John introduces that into the text. And there are parts of this that are woven through this passage that are so powerful. So Pastor Paul said this seamless garment was typically woven by a mom when she sent her son out into the world. And you better believe that, you know, the first one gets the most attention on this garment, right? And here's Mary watching while soldiers are gambling for this seamless garment that she had made for her son when she sent him out into his public ministry. She's watching that. And then John tells us a story where uh, he is apparently the, the disciple Jesus loved, and he's standing there with her, and Jesus addresses her from the cross and calls her woman, which is not a term of disrespect, but it is a term of distance. And it brings back the only other time that John brings Jesus' mother into his gospel. He doesn't tell the stories about the shepherds and the angels. But the only other time that Jesus' mother comes into John's gospel is back in chapter 2 when she comes to him and says, they've run out of wine at this wedding. And he says to her, woman, like, What's, why is that my problem? And then she says, do whatever he tells you. But he calls her, he addresses her in the same way, and it's, it's a term that creates distance between the two of them. And in, in John 2, he says, the hour has not yet come, and here... Uh, that same word is used in verse 27. This is the hour that has now come. All of this is tied together for John. And then she's apparently still there when he's, uh, his body is parched with thirst. But John is a brilliant writer as he weaves together the stories of Jesus. And it's not just about what's happening with his physical body. This is the Jesus who had told the woman at the well uh, if you come to me, I will give you living water and you will never thirst again. And this is Jesus at this moment, desperately thirsty, not so much in body, but in soul as he bears the sins of the world. And his mother is there while both his body and soul are crying out for, for refreshment, for replenishment, for God himself. And then his mother's still there, apparently, because it says from that hour John took her into his home. But we know that John is still there with the, with the, when the sword pierces his side because John says, I'm the one who saw this. I'm the eyewitness, and I can tell you that it's true. And so John is still there, so Mary is still there while these soldiers get ready to take a, a, a metal mallet and going to smash his legs. And she watches while they do it to these other two men that are hanging on either side of him. And you can imagine her holding her breath while they go up to Jesus and they're getting ready to smash the legs of her favorite son. And she can't do anything about it. And instead they realize he's already dead. He's breathed his last. 
And so they pierce his side, and she watches while the soldier takes this spear and punctures his side and outflow blood and water. And again, for John, this brilliant gospel writer, it's all about weaving together this story. It's a, it's a story, it's a grand story from Old Testament and New Testament, and he keeps bringing in these threads that, look, this is, this is all part of the story. It's been told in the Old Testament. I'm pulling all this together, but also in John's own gospel. We've already talked about the water story, but John is the one who, after the feeding of the 5,000, said that Jesus told the crowds, unless you drink my blood, you can't you can't live, you can't have eternal life, and now we have blood and water. It's not about, from John's perspective, it's not about the, the physical indication of death, although that may be medically true, it's about water and blood gushing from this one, and that's exactly what every single one of us needs, and even in his death, especially in his death, he provides exactly what we need, and his mother watches as all this plays out. And we don't know whether she went to the site of the burial or not. Uh, we do know that Mary Magdalene went there and that Mary Magdalene was there on Sunday morning. The significance of that story is not just that Jesus was really dead, but that they laid him in a tomb where no one had ever been laid so that Sunday morning nobody could say, well, you went in the tomb and you looked at the wrong shelf. Like there was, he was in another part of the tomb. <laughs> no, there was only one person who had ever been laid in that tomb, and that's the significance of the story. So I want you to think for a moment about the fact that this is Mary's favorite son who was crucified and died and buried. Why is that significant? Because the way John tells this story, he may be her favorite, but she's not his favorite. If she had been his favorite, he would have come down that, from that cross and spared her that grief and agony. If she had been his favorite, his concern would have not only been for somebody to take care of her, but he would have tried to spare her in every way possible from the pain that she was enduring. So if she's not his favorite, who is? You are. I am. And he's staying on that cross because he has every single one of us in mind. And she doesn't get any more, she doesn't get any more um, special treatment on that day than anyone else. And Jesus simply says, look, what I'm leaving behind for you is someone else. I can't be there for you in body anymore. I'm leaving behind for you a community. In the same way he told his disciples, wash one another's feet and love one another. He says, John, take care of her. Mom, take care of him. That's how it works in my family here. Everybody is on that equal ground, but listen, I'm up here. I'm not up here just for one person. I'm up here for the sins of the whole world, and Jesus has you in mind and me in mind as he's up there. I'm intrigued by how the Apostle Paul then plays this out in his letter to the Romans. So as Paul reflects on the death and burial of Jesus in Romans chapter 6, He's reminding us that when you doubt you're of worth or value, when you doubt about where God is in your story, in your moment, you just need to come back to the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He may have been Mary's favorite son. He was God's only son, and he gave him for you. And Paul's reflecting on that, and this is what he says in Romans 6. And by the way, let me just reemphasize what Paul said. So 
we, we know more details about what crucifixion are like, but part of the power of this story is that John says that's not the point of the story. John doesn't go into the details of the flesh hanging off his back during his flogging and his breathing and having to push himself up. And he either does that because uh, he thinks everybody knows, but John's readers all wouldn't have known, or because it's really not the point of the story. So John goes into these other things that are the point of the story, and the point of the story is that he's hanging there for us and what's dying that day. So this is Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What David Hammer showed us in this video is a personal story about what this story, what John 19 is exactly about. Sin died that day. Death died that day. The power of sin died that day. The power of the devil to control us died that day. It was over. It was done. It is finished. It is accomplished. Everything necessary for us to have our sins forgiven, but everything also necessary for us to win the battle over sin happened that day on the cross. We died with Christ when we embrace him. We are fully included in his death in the power over sin. You say, Pastor Bob, that's not my experience. Like every day, I still feel the battle of sin. In fact, every day I blow it. Listen, guilt and shame were buried that day. Every time you mess up, you go back to the cross and remember that when guilt and shame were buried in that tomb, they didn't come out on Sunday morning with Jesus. They were left there. They were buried there. So even in in the moment where I feel least worthy of this cross, I can go back and say, you know what? He sees me as worthy because everything necessary, not only to remove the power, but the penalty of sin happened that day. And I don't have to live in it any longer. And I don't have to feel the guilt of it when I do because Jesus took care of all of that the day that he was crucified and dead and buried. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that when we face the battle, the struggle with sin, we face it with the great victor leading the charge, having already won the war, and we simply clean up the skirmishes. And we thank you that at this moment, all who trust in Christ are seen in Christ as having died and been buried and resurrected by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. So help us this day to reclaim who we are in Christ, those who have been declared not guilty and those who have been given every power to conquer sin and the devil. We love you, we thank you that we're yours, and we thank you that you see every one of us as my favorite child. You're the one for whom I gave myself that you might live again and live for me. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.